Well, as you guys are taking your seats, you can also open your Bibles to that passage our friend Megan just read. Malachi 3, chapter 2, and verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. It was a treat just now to to sing um, outside of my cage and get to hear the church. Uh, I love how we sing as a church loudly. So thank you guys for doing that. And, and please keep well in your prayers. Uh, he's preaching next Sunday. So um, it'll be a great time, but keep him in your prayers to, for healing. Uh, we're continuing through Malachi. And if you've been journeying with, with us in the study together, you know that the book of Malachi is kind of poses a series of questions and God responds to those questions or asks questions of his own. Uh, The the book opens by the people questioning God's love for them, and God responds. God then questions the people's honor and reverence and worship of him. He says, the people have offered polluted offerings, despising my name, they're profaning the temple. God goes in to then rebuking the priests who are leading the people to do this, uh, rebuking them for leading the people into sin, for not leading the people in true instruction. Uh, The people of God question why God does not accept Favor, offerings with favor, and God responds. You guys have been faithless to the covenant. And specifically, they were being faithless in divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. They were profaning the covenant. They were defying the covenant of marriage that was to be protected and cherished. And that leads us to our passage today um, in which Malachi says, you guys are wearying the Lord. That's how he opens. Now, if you haven't been journeying with us through the book of Malachi, or uh, maybe you've forgotten kind of the historical context, it's important, I think, to remind us of that as we get into the passage this morning, to look at the social historical background of what's going on in Malachi's time. Uh, The Jews had returned to their promised land. Um, After being exiled from it, they had rebuilt their temple. And in so doing, they expected their nation to be returned to greatness. They expected uh, Israel to be returned to political uh, health and wealth and prosperity and blessings were to be poured out from God and that they were to conquer the nations and this hadn't happened yet. The promises of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who kind of allude to these blessings seemed to be full of hot air. God's promises to restore them to greatness seemed empty and the people of God started to believe that God had failed them. So they asked this question, where is the God of justice? I want to start this morning by saying it's not wrong to ask questions of God. In fact, it's good. This, this is how we, we grow in our faith, to ask questions. But it is wrong to, to do what the Israelites, what the people of God in this moment are about to do. They don't simply just ask a question. They start attacking his love and questioning his character. Because they don't just leave it as, where is the God of justice? They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So again, it's not wrong to ask questions of God. It's not wrong to express doubts. In fact, if you read through the the Psalms, kind of the prayer book of the Bible, there's some really real, raw prayers of doubt, of question. Uh, One of them that I was thinking of this week was in Psalm 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to that one. This is a psalm that I turn to when I'm feeling down or low or feeling like God has abandoned me. 
the Psalm of David in Psalm 13. Listen to, listen to how real David gets with God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, lest my eyes sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has, been, he has dealt bountifully with me. See the realness of that psalm? Or consider Psalm 22. Just slip your pages a couple to the right there. This is a psalm that Jesus cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? The words for the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet look what David doesn't do. He doesn't question the character of God. He, in fact, affirms it in this moment. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The Christian faith is never presented as one that you have all the answers figured out. It's never presented one as you never have any doubts or questions. In fact, I think what a, a great kind of heartbeat of the Christian faith, a great prayer that we can be offering is, is what uh, the Father says in Mark 9, 24, when Jesus is uh, going to heal his child. He says, the Father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. So when you're praying to God, God, I don't, I don't feel your love. God, your promises don't seem to be true in my life. Where are you? That is a good prayer. And also to be followed up with, yet I trust you. I submit to you. I know that you are here. I think what is wrong, what we see the Israelites doing is say, God, because I don't feel your love, or God, because my life isn't panning out as I wanted it to, or God, your promises aren't true in my life, therefore you are a liar. Therefore, you are not good. You are not true. This is what the people of God are doing in this moment. They're, misalign they're maligning the character of God. They're saying, because God's promises and his, the blessings and the life that's, that he seemingly promised haven't happened, we're not restored to greatness. We're seemingly kind of just sitting here waiting for God. Where are his, his promises? Are these prophecies true that were promised of us? God cannot be just. This is what the people are saying. In fact, they say, everyone who does evil is good in his sight, and everyone who does evil, he delights in them. This is a huge attack at God because this stands in direct contradiction to the character of God, the word of God. Isaiah 30, 18 says, for the Lord is a God of justice. Isaiah 61, 8 says, for the Lord loves justice, and I hate robbery and wrong. Job 34.12 says, Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. 
Psalm 56, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Psalm 5.4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And yet the people of God are saying that God has no standard. He doesn't know right from wrong. He doesn't know good from evil. And the people are then assuming we do. We know what right from wrong. We know good versus evil more than God does. You see the pride of the people in this question. They're right, God's wrong, or God doesn't care, or God is showing favor to those who are wicked. I think as I was reading this this, this week, I was just convicted of the, the reality that we can do the same thing, can't we? We can have the same kind of pride. What do you do when things don't work out the way you wanted? What do you do when God's promises aren't fulfilled in your time frame or in the way that you want? What do you do when God's will and plan does not line up with yours? Do you practice realigning your expectations, your plans, your ideas, your emotions with the will of God? Or do you seek somehow to change God to line up with your will? Many people, I think, even have the same kind of pride as uh, outside of the church. Those who wrestle with the claims of the Christian faith have the same kind of pride as the people of God in, in the book of Malachi. How many of you guys have heard people question or say as you're maybe sharing the gospel or talking with someone who is skeptical of the Christian faith or maybe seeking out truth? They'll say, well, how can the Christian God be good if he allows evil and suffering? Anyone ever heard this? This is like probably the, one of the biggest objections I get as I'm talking with people. God can't be good. Evil and suffering exist in the world. And because there's evil and suffering in the world, there's, there's kind of two logical explanations that people will come up with. Number one, either God is not good because evil in the world exists. Or number two, God is not powerful because he can't really do anything about the evil and suffering that's in the world. I was just talking with a guy, uh, a pastor's son, a couple weeks ago about this very issue, a big objection, a big roadblock he had to the Christian faith. I just, I can't see how this God can be good. I can't see why there would be evil and suffering. There can't be a good reason for this. And this is not my original thought, so don't think that I had some amazing wisdom or profound question. I heard this from Tim Keller. Um, he asked a question. Um, I think it's kind of a, a logical, intellectual pride if we say, well, because I can't think of a good reason for evil and suffering, therefore it can't exist. Have you ever thought about that? Who is the, the, the author of truth, the judge in your life? Is it ultimately you? Are you willing to maybe have that from out, someone outside of yourself? I think this is the same kind of pride the Israelites have. Since we are not experiencing the blessings that God seemingly promised, evildoers are succeeding. God, you must not be good. You must not be a God of justice. You must be distant. You must not care. Therefore, where are you? Another question I was thinking about this week is what kind of entitlement do we have? What kind of gospel do we believe in? There's a book that I think I recommended either last week or a couple weeks ago, The Explicit Gospel by a guy named Matt Chandler. And I wanted to read from you guys a quote uh, from that book. It's a little long, but I think it explains, he explains a lot better than I can, than I can explain it or, or word it. He says this, If everything is God's, 
you have nothing to give him that he doesn't already own. This means that you cannot put him into your debt. And this means alternatively that God owes no man anything. Our very existence has been gifted to us by his grace. While we lament the apparent injustice of pain and suffering, how often do we forget that every good thing in a fallen world is wholly a gift of God's mercy and grace? We think to question when bridges fall, but not to wonder at his grace when every bridge does not. Every fit of laughter, every delectable morsel of food, and every single smile is the result of his mercy and grace. He owes us none of it. Now, let me tell you why this is so terrifying. If this is true, we have nothing with which to negotiate with him, nothing to bargain with. But it has been my experience that most evangelicals believe Christians are in a bargaining position. We carry insidious prosperity gospel around in our dark, little, entitled hearts. We come to the throne and say, I'll do this, and you'll do that. And if I do this, then you'll do that for me. In the end, God says, you keep trying to pay me off with stuff that's already mine. Some of us, he's been trying to bargain with their lives, but God says, please, I'll take that life if I want it. I'm God. We presume upon our service. I'll serve you, God, we say. But he replies, I'm not served by human hands as though I need anything. What are you going to do? Give me something to eat? What are you going to do? Paint my house? What are you going to give to me as if I'm lacking? The profitable result in these exchanges is revealing the idolatry and pride within us. We want to live as though the Christian life is a 50-50 project we undertake with God. Like faith is some kind of cosmic vending machine, and we reinforce this idolatry by bad preachers, by ministers with no respect for the scriptures, by talking heads who teach out of emotion instead of text, who tickle ears with it, with no evident fear of God, who curses, brings of alternative gospels. He owes us nothing. What kind of entitlement do we have? Do we walk around just expressing God to blessing, bless us in our timing how we want it? God reveals his frustration in his heart towards his people with this. It says in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How would you like God to respond to that with you? Now we know that God can't get tired or, or weak or lose his strength somehow. But there's a figure of speech saying that God is tired of their complaining. He's tired of their attacks against his character. He's fed up with them. And it's interesting, as you look at this word weary, it took me back to what the people complained about in chapter 1, verse 13. The people are talking about these sacrifices and these offerings that they have to bring to God. And they say, what a weariness is this? Remember that passage? And they, they snort at it. And it's almost as if God were saying, okay, you guys are saying that this is a weariness to serve me. I'm weary of you. You're getting fed up with me. I'm fed up with you. But God promises them, even in his grace, you, th you see this, his gracious response to them. Behold. Now, if you've been in church or you uh, are familiar with the scriptures, you know this is a key word found in the Bible. Behold. It's another way of saying, hey, look. Look at this. Look at that. Sit up. Pay attention. This is important. You're asking, where am I? Where is the God of justice? I'm coming. I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way. He will suddenly come into his temple. The Lord whom you seek will come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, there it is again. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
You might be thinking, what, what is the significance of coming into his temple? Why, is, why did Malachi in, include that? Well, again, the Jews had hoped that when they finished rebuilding the temple, that God would inhabit the temple in the same way he did in Moses' time and in Solomon's time, when the glory of God was tangibly seen and experienced in the completion of the temple. Uh, the prophet or the, excuse me, the book of Halakai kind of alludes to this, that the people are told that God's glory would be greater in the latter temple than in the former. So you can imagine the kind of expectations that the people of God had in this moment when they completed the temple. And yet in Malachi's time, the, the temple was not filled with this same visible glory, this greater glory, experience of God's glory. But God promises it's not always going to be like this. The Lord whom you seek will come into his temple. Did you guys pick up on the irony in verse three? You guys see that kind of a, it's almost kind of like you could read it with a sarcastic tone. The Lord whom you seek. Isn't that interesting? You guys tracking with me? Maybe that, you don't think that's interesting? In verse three, verse one, verse one. Excuse me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, we're not tracking. <laughs> Thank you. See, I need to know that sometimes. Chapter three, verse one. There we go. God says, the Lord whom you seek. Move on a little further. You say, I'm going to send the covenant of the, mes- the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, up to, the point, up to this point in the book, God has been answering, responding to complaints of the people. The people not seeking God the people that are profaning the covenant, the people that our hearts have far from God. I think this is ironic. There's irony in this verse. And the phrase is connected, I think, just to that verse earlier in chapter two, verse 17, because the people say they complain that God is pleased with those who do evil. And yet they seek good. But the irony of that is they seek, they desire this messenger of the covenant who will come with justice. It's almost as if God was saying, you claim that I do evil, that you're pleased with the wicked. You don't know what you're asking if you ask for the God of justice to come. You're asking me to bring justice, yet you don't realize that you too will be judged. Israel, I think, just assumed that when God comes, he would appear, it would be great for them. It would only be blessing. The people of God were not realizing, they were ignorant to the reality that they too were wicked. They too would be experiencing God's judgment and they don't see their own hypocrisy, their moral failure, their hard-heartedness, their blindness, and they're bold enough to ask for God's judgment. God responds, who can endure the day of his coming? And the answer there would be no one. Who can stand before he appears? Who is righteous before the righteous judge? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. I heard one pastor say it that uh, the kind of the significance of this phrase, like a refiner's fire, and saying that God is not a forest fire. God doesn't come in and just destroy everything. He is a refiner's fire, but he also is a fire. You can't kind of try to soften or uh, take that, that the, maybe the, the sting or the, the harshness that might, might come to you, the God is like a refiner's fire, a refiner's fire in which metals, gold and silver would be put in a hot furnace and the impurities would be taken out, burned off. Or he says here, he's like fuller's soap. How many of you guys know what a fuller is? Or fuller soap, ever use fuller soap? 
What, what is the significance of that? Well, a fuller, fun fact, <coughs> a fuller was someone who cleaned cloth, uh, thickened it, worked it, beat it, and they had this kind of soap, which was a harsh chemical taken from plants uh, to remove tough stains. It was a, a lye soap. So this soap, this, and this image of soap was used throughout the Old Testament as God kind of cleaning and purifying his people, spiritual cleansing. So this fuller soap, this kind of harsh soap to remove tough stains is what is, uh, God is getting at here. These kind of two images, fire and washing, I think indicate the people's wickedness, the extent of their wickedness, the degree of the purification that is necessary to restore them. Now we're in verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. God must purify his people before they will offer pleasing offerings to him. And you see that he starts with the priests. He starts with the leaders would be the priest who would who'd be responsible for spreading this out to the people. And he must change the people's hearts so that they once again will be pleasing to him. But then God issues a warning. He says, I will draw near to you for judgment. These same cynics, these religious people who are attacking God's character will face judgment. These Jews who are looking for God to come in judgment against the pagan nations will be judged. The same accusers who claim God was unjust will face God's judgment. And you see Malachi list out their uh, specific sins. He says, I will be swift against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers, against the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. But then he throws in this last phrase, which is kind of like a junk drawer, the root of everything. They don't fear me. the root of the problem, a lack of reverence, a lack of honor, awe, deep respect. And God says, I will be swift against you. Now, Malachi is a prophet, and this is a prophecy. And we have to ask the question, well, when is this going to be fulfilled? Is this prophecy already been fulfilled? When is God going to come to his temple? Who is this messenger that prepares the way? Who is this messenger of the covenant? Scholars believe that this term messenger is a a play on the meaning of the name Malachi because Malachi's name, it literally means messenger. But when we look at the New Testament, when we flip our Bibles just a little bit to the right, we see that the New Testament authors interpret this prophecy as the fulfillment of the coming of John the Baptist. The, The messenger who prepares the way for the Lord is John the Baptist. Matthew 11.10 quotes this verse in talking about John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger. Mark 1.2 also includes this. Luke 7.27 also quote this verse. John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is the one who prepares the way for the messenger of the covenant. And if we read, continue in our New Testament, we see who is this messenger of the covenant, the identity of this person. Who is this Lord who follows, who will suddenly come into his temple? And everyone who's been in church, the Sunday school answer is Jesus. 
Jesus Christ. Jesus first comes into his temple as a baby when he's dedicated, but most famously, more prominently, when Jesus comes the week that he died. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He comes into the temple after the crowds are singing Hosanna, after they lay down coats before him as they anoint him as king. He comes into his temple. And if you remember, for those of you who are with us as we study through the gospel according to Mark, we alluded to this, this, this verse in Malachi. This God suddenly coming to his temple because in Mark, he, he describes Jesus coming into his temple and that's kind of it. And then he just walks out. I think this is the significance of this. And although uh, I believe it's kind of irony when God getting at the people of saying, you know, this messenger who you seek. I think the reality is, is that all people were seeking this Jesus. This is the person that the Israelites were seeking. Jesus was in fact the one that they were longing for, looking for. He was the one that the world is looking for, the deliverer. He is the one who is the refiner's fire, who's going to remove the impurities from his people, who's going to cleanse his people as the fuller soap. But here's what's so scandalous about what Jesus does. Here's what's so scandalous about the grace of God is that Jesus removes the impurities by taking them. Many of you guys know that I love study Bibles and I love... um, Specifically, the, the Gospel Transformation Bible. I've got a copy of it on the, on the bar in here. It's a, it's a study Bible that, that aims to kind of bring all of Scripture back to Jesus, all of Scripture back to the Gospel. And the kind of the, the tagline under it is proclaiming Christ from all of Scripture. And I loved what was written under this section of Malachi. Talking about Jesus, the refiner's fire purifies us first because it burned Jesus. The launder's soap washes us clean because its painful sting was borne by Christ. Only when we understand this can we truly rejoice to see holy Jesus coming to take possession of his people. Isn't that beautiful? That this refiner's fire took it upon himself, that he was burned on our behalf. He went to the cross and took our sufferings upon himself. Because of what Christ has done now, we no longer have to fear the wrath of God in the sense of condemnation. We don't have to fear being consumed by this all-consuming God. We don't have to fear being beaten and, and worked by this fuller soap because it was first done to Christ. Therefore, this now has a, a different meaning for us. We now long for this purification. We, we trust that this purification is for our good. We trust that Jesus' cleansing is for our good and for his glory. And because of this, Jesus, we now can offer acceptable offerings to God. Because of Christ, our hearts now have been purified and true worship can again be given to God. If you are in Christ, know that you are a cleansed and purified priesthood. You are a kingdom of priests. You are called to bring pleasing offerings to God in worship. I think the greatest offering that you can give is your life. What Paul writes to the church in Rome. But know this morning, if you are not a Christian, know that Christ will come a second time. And I believe that Malachi has this in view in verse five. This judgment. This is what 
Malachi has in mind that the Lord will come for a final judgment, a final defeat of Satan, a final vindication, where the wicked will be forever condemned and punished. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you might think, well, I'm kind of checked off the list. God might not be swift against me because I'm not a sorcerer. I don't practice dark magic and black magic. I don't worship Satan. I'm not an adulterer. I don't oppress the fatherless and the widow. But I would ask you, friend, do you fear God? Do you seek to honor God? Do you stand in reverence of him? Do you seek to worship him above all things? It would not be loving for me to not warn you about what is to come if you do not fear God. You have something to fear if you do not fear God. If you have not submitted your life to God for his plans and for his purposes, if you do not trust and treasure Christ and what he did for you on the cross, you have something to fear. What if you're here this morning and you are a believer? You do trust in Christ. What can we take away from the passage this morning? What can we learn from Malachi 2.17 through 3.5? Let me just give you three things I think we can learn. Three uh, applications from the passage. Number one, actively seek to put to death the sin that dwells within your heart. Number one, actively seek to put to death the sin that dwells within your heart. Be careful of making the same mistake as the Jews did in Malachi's time. Are you a judgmental person? Do you want the justice of God to come down and destroy all of those pagan sinners? Do you look out and see God being profaned? The church struggling. Many people not only not worshiping God, but mocking God. Do you simply want the justice of God to come down and destroy everyone outside of you, or do you take a look at yourself? How self-righteous are you? Do you attack God's character when your expectations or interpretations of his promises don't line up with your reality? I've been guilty of this this year. I look out and I see the church in Des Moines struggling. It's not a church in Des Moines really that is flourishing, that is growing. In fact, the church in Des Moines across the whole is stagnant or declining. The church is getting older. Young people are not in church. The church is not, uh, even as you talk to members of the community, the church does not have a good reputation. As I've shared the gospel with people this year and no one has come to know Christ, I have asked the question, God, is your word powerful enough? Do you want to save people? Is the gospel sufficient? Oftentimes I get so focused on the sinners out there, the ones with the real sin issues, you know, that are really visible, that smell like sinners, they talk like sinners, you know? You know the people I'm talking about. Do we forget about the sin inside of us? Are we actively seeking to destroy sin in our lives? 
Are we flippant with it? Are we complacent? Are we like these Israelites, wanting God to come and, and restore justice, but being ignorant and blind to the reality of the own sin in our life? Yesterday, Stephanie was running some errands, so I got the chance to hang out with Addison in the morning. And for a while now, Stephanie has been saying and suggesting and encouraging me to um, use my leaf blower that I got for Christmas to kind of rake up all the leaves that are in the backyard. I mean, I, I couldn't, for those of you guys who have been to our house, you know we have kind of a, a paver patio in the back. You couldn't see the stones. There was so many leaves. So I tried to use my leaf blower, and the leaves were so wet and clumped together that Nothing really happened. I had to get up the rake. And I was raking up the leaves, and I was thinking about, man, it probably would have been a lot easier to deal with this earlier in the year. When the leaves were falling, when they were dry, when I didn't just let them build up and kind of take over everything. It was a lot of work, and it's still not very clean. I mean, I got the big piles out. But I started thinking about this with my own heart. When I get complacent, when I neglect repentance and confession, sin just kind of builds up in my heart. This was more, uh, I think, prevalent and seen in my life when I had a garden in Louisiana. And I had to be diligent about pulling weeds. Have you guys ever had a garden? Well, if you, if you haven't had a garden, if you are a gardener, you know that you have to stay on top of weeds. The longer you let weeds grow, the longer you let them take root and grow, the more their root system develops and the less fruitful your garden will be. So if you are not diligent in pulling weeds, the weeds can take over and the weeds can destroy the fruit. I think this, this image, this illustration is very relevant in our hearts. If there is a sin in our life that we think isn't really a big deal, I'll get to that later if we aren't even looking at our own hearts. I mean, think about this week, or just think about recently. When was the last time you confessed a sin and repented to God? Is it something that's active, like a, just something you do every day? Or is it only something that you do when you have done something that's hurt someone? Maybe you've gotten in a fight with your wife, you've gotten in a fight with your son or daughter, you've gotten in a fight, or you've gotten really frustrated, you've gotten angry, and you've caught yourself... And you think, oh, I've gone too far. Do we even see the sin in our heart? I'm going to be honest with you guys. Sometimes I look at my life and I think, man, there's not a lot of sin in there. I feel pretty good. I might go a week or two. You guys ever do this or just me? Honestly, like how, how casual are you with your sin? Do we think sin is only these big things, lying, committing adultery, sorcery? Or do we think about what, are, what, are, what consumes our thoughts? Man, I've just gone two hours fantasizing, worshiping power tools. Online shopping is a big one for me. I, I kind of turn to that. What consumes your thoughts? Are you passive with your sin? Do you have people in your life that identify sin for you? This is really helpful. Sounds scary, but it's really helpful. You also have to have the humility to accept it and repent. 
But do you have people in your life that help identify sin? And do we grieve over it? Number two. Second application, seek Christ with all of your thoughts, emotions, and actions. This goes along with the first one and some questions I've been asking, but we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we seeking? Take a look at your past week. What were you seeking? Rest? Just to get through the week so that you could be ready for the weekend? Were you seeking entertainment? What were your thoughts consumed by? Right now, what are you trying to justify that, wasn't, that isn't that big of a deal? Maybe the Holy Spirit's putting something in your heart and you're thinking, but no. <laughs> Do you delight in Jesus? When you've had a long day and when you're tired and you just can't go anymore, what do you turn to ultimately? Sex? Television? Your phone? Games? Alcohol? Do you know deep down that Jesus is better? And do your actions align with your belief? Do you have a faith that triumphs over the worldly things that rules victorious over the reality, knowing and trusting that Jesus is better. Friends, we won't have a faith that believes these things, that actively plays this out in our life. This won't be something that kind of bears fruit in our life, that is functional in our life, if we are not actively seeking to grow in our faith. Are you listening to sermons, reading books, seeking to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures? Are you seeking to memorize scriptures? How are you seeking to grow your faith? Finally, number three, rejoice in the refinement of the spirit. If you are in Christ, think about how is God refining you, washing you, purifying you, Seems like lately in the life of our church, he's using suffering and sickness. Maybe he's using stress, troubles, heartache, unmet expectations. When you experience these trials and sufferings, what kind of questions do you ask? I would encourage you not to ask the questions as, God, why? God, don't you love me? God, I thought you were there for me. Ask the question, God, what are you doing and how is this making me more like Christ? How is what you're doing right now sanctifying me? And rejoice in that. Jesus' brother James says, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds because you know it. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I don't normally do this to end a sermon, but I wanted to end by reading a scripture of a passage of scripture over us, kind of as a, a closing prayer, a closing thought. Passage is Hebrews 12, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. The author writes, Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son, therefore, whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it used the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint and rather be healed. Strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book Malachi that you've given us. I thank you that your word is, is timeless. Always speak to us in timely ways. Father, I thank you that you are a God of justice and that all things work according to your sovereign good plan. You are never frustrated. You are never outdone. You are never outmastered. Father, I pray that by uh, your word being preached, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen our faith. That we would trust you above all things. That although we have doubts and that we might not know what is all going on, we would draw closer to you. We would lean into you. Father, I pray that our church would not become callous to our sin. Father, I pray that we would not believe the lie that the real sinners are outside of these walls. Father, would you Use your Holy Spirit now to show us our hard-heartedness, our callousness, our blindness. Would you give us the strength and the power to pull the weeds? I thank you for the way that you refine us, oftentimes through suffering and through trials. I thank you for the way that you have refined our church and that you are continuing to refine it. And Father, I ask that through this process, only by your power and by your Holy Spirit would we rejoice in that. Lord, I ask now that as we think about what you have done for us on the cross, as we reflect upon the gospel, as we reflect upon all that you endured for us, the sting and the wrath of God that you felt on the cross on our behalf, that it would lead us to experience your love more deeply and to respond in worship uh, with more commitment and passion and joy. In your son's name I pray, amen. Well, every week at the Mountain Church, we... Uh, remember 
the gospel through partaking in something called communion. And communion is a time in which we remember uh, the body of Christ that was given to us on the cross. We remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross. And I want to encourage you every week as we do this to take some time to reflect. I know sometimes it's, it's easy. Um, you kind of want to sit there and, and maybe you think about it for a little bit, but then your mind wanders and then you see everyone kind of getting up to take communion and you just kind of join the line. To really take some time to think about what are some ways right now maybe that the Holy Spirit might be prodding you, might be revealing sin or showing you an area of your life that you are blind to or you uh, maybe don't want to deal with. And although I know at, at the church we talk about sin a lot and sometimes it can feel like doomy and gloomy and kind of Daniel just always beating us in the head, asking these convicting questions, talking about sin, but confessing sin and repenting of sin is joyful, isn't it? I mean, if we really believe that sin is destructive, that sin does not lead to joy in Christ, that sin uh, robs us of the closeness and the intimacy with God and one another, then we should like long to get rid of it, right? But I think oftentimes what happens is we think that sin is more enjoyable than God, don't we? If we're honest, we might not want to get rid of some sins because we actually like it. People outside of the church, people who are outside of Christ, I don't think are sinning because someone is forcing them to. Sin is, they're doing what is good. They're seeking their happiness. But as Christians, we know, we have faith that there is something that is better, something that's deeper, something that might not be as tangibly seen and felt, but something that is there, namely God, his son, Jesus Christ. So I'll just, just encourage us this morning as we're, before we take communion, to sit and think and repent of sin and then rejoice. Worship. These songs, these last three songs that we sing together, I hope are way louder than singing the first two. Let's rejoice together as we get rid of our sin, as we think about the gospel, as we anticipate and we long for his coming return. So the table is now open. Please come at your own pace.